passage this morning comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that we, as your church, are able to gather here freely this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, we are excited for the students who are able to go to summer camp uh, throughout this coming week. We pray that for those who don't know you, that you would do a work in their hearts. We pray that you would preach powerfully through Pastor James as he is speaking to us at camp. And for those that do know you, Father, we pray that you would grow them in their love for you and their love for others. We pray that they would be committed disciples of Jesus Christ who live unashamed lives for his glory. We also pray for Pastor Dana this morning who's preaching uh, the word to us. We pray that you would speak through him. May he speak only the words that you would have him to say. And may you apply it to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Pastor Ryan, before you run, it looks like the, uh, uh, the iPad here is going to die. If you could run into my office and preach off, I mean, print off another, uh, <laughs> God bless technology, and he has blessed us with it. Uh, my name is Daniel. I am the pastor of worship and prayer here at Christ Community Church, so normally I have the privilege to lead corporate singing, but today it is my distinct privilege and honor to have the opportunity to preach the word of God to you. And we are jumping back into our series, oh, it's charging, it's just not taking the charge. <laughs> Uh, we're jumping back into our series in Romans. We took a little break while we were outside. And to get us back to the context of where we were, we spent almost 10 weeks looking at how Paul smashes into dust the idea that there is some form of human behavior, either religious or irreligious, that can possibly merit the approval of God. He directs our attention first to the pagan, and he demonstrates that the pagan is not merely ignorance of God, but he is actively and prejudicially suppressing the truth of God in his unrighteousness. Next, he turns upon the moralist, and he reveals that their own morality, their own beloved righteous standard by which they judge everyone else, thank you, sir, Oh, that's going to be a hard preacher. <clears throat> By which they judge everyone else. That will become the evidence which will substantiate the moralist's own condemnation. And lastly, he goes to the religious. He goes to the one who assumes their right standing before God due to their holy book their religious pedigree, their external trappings of religiosity, Paul reveals that even those things will serve to heap judgment upon them at the day of the Lord. So by the middle of Romans chapter three, it is crystal clear 
in ourselves, in ourselves, we have no hope of righteousness before a perfectly holy God. And just when you think that there is no other option than despair, two simple words bring relief to our soul. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from this crushing burden, manifested through the faith in Jesus Christ. God presented him, Jesus, as a propitiation, the atoning sacrifice that satisfies God's holy judgment and makes us holy. So we're going to spend the next few weeks discussing the sacrifice, that atoning work, because it's relevant, both as a currently controversial topic and because of its ramifications in the Christian life. The concept of penal substitutionary atonement appears to be fully out of favor in the rarefied air of the academy. But that rejection is beginning to trickle down from the intellectual peaks into the mainstream, and it's getting into our water sources. And this has happened through the, the rise to prominence of the new perspective, which Jeff touched on a little over a month ago, and also the appeal of public theologians like Brian Zahn and Greg Boyd, who see the concept of Christ being executed in our place as a pagan concept, smuggled into our theology by bloodthirsty medievalists or ignorant near-pagan tribesmen. Some self-described red-letter Christians, the ones who only concern themselves with the actual teachings and sayings of Jesus, uh, dismiss it as an invention of Paul, claiming it's foreign to Christ's own words and ministry described in the Gospels. And culturally, as the church in the West has come under greater and greater rejection, public rejection, this is one of those issues that can be used to dismiss the church as unenlightened at best or barbaric at worst. But we, we are convinced by the scriptures that although it is not the only aspect of atonement provided for in the work of Christ, it is the chief and primary component, this penal substitution. So we are going to spend some time studying it so that we can understand what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3 and throughout the rest of the book of Romans. Pastor Jeff is going to preach kind of a, a systematic theology of it next week, I think. I don't want to ruin his. Please come back and listen. Uh, but we're going to begin this, this week by taking an excursus out of Romans and into the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And there we will see not only the clear establishment of vicarious suffering, which brings redemption, we will find that the unwillingness to accept that message of legal substitutionary atonement was prophesied thousands of years before our day. Because as we'll see in the reading, the role of the suffering servant is confounding. The role of the suffering servant is confounding. 
We're going to start the reading. I'm actually going to, to read a little bit ahead. I mean, a little bit behind. I'm going to start in Isaiah 52, the last three verses, where the, the servant is introduced. And it says this, See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as the many were appalled at you. His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. And so he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had heard. And now 53.1. But who has believed our message? Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we did not value him. Now, the chapter break at 53 clearly divides this section of Isaiah's prophecy unnaturally. It's actually the end of chapter 52, which I read, that introduces the discussion regarding the suffering servant. And it's a poem of five stanzas, three lines apiece. And it's mirrored around the third stanza. So first and fifth deal with the servant's exaltation. Second and fourth deal with the servant's rejection. And the third one deals with the significance of what he has done. Additionally, the servant of Yahweh is a prominent figure throughout the letter of, uh, the, throughout the latter prophecies of Isaiah, and there is some controversy over who the servant is, but we'll get into the identity of the servant later. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. <laughs> but whoever it is. Isaiah 52 begins by saying that he will be lifted up. He will be highly exalted. He will have a position of honor and success, so much so that kings will be silent before him, but... And it immediately dives into a discussion of his appalling disfigurement. His unrecognizability as even human as the method of his exaltation. It's as if the prophet Isaiah knew it'd be nearly impossible for the human mind to connect this lowly earthly state and experience of the, and appearance of the suffering servant with a concept of exaltation and honor. And so the first sentence in 53 says, who can believe this? Who has even heard, like, this doesn't make sense. He grew up like a lonely plant in a desert. He didn't come from a rich and powerful society. He didn't come out of a noble household that, that was, was influential, but rather he came from a barren culture of which he was a seemingly insignificant product. He did not appear as one would expect the emissary of Almighty God to appear. In the ancient Near East, kings, kings were the emissaries of their gods. 
And they, they dressed and they presented themselves and they acted accordingly. And, in, and even in our natural state, we gravitate towards handsome and strong, like me, just kidding, um, not plain and unassuming, like Ryan. <laughs> Sorry. That's not in my notes. <laughs> you see, we want someone who is unforgettable, with personality, with dynamism, not someone who is easily rejected and despised. And certainly not one that is so lowly and unremarkable that people turn away from him. You know what I'm talking about. It's that turning away of our eyes and our face when we approach a homeless person. It's that kind of lowly and unremarkable. So in what way could he possibly be successful? Victory over the nations and the silencing of kings in the ancient Near East was accomplished by mighty men and burgeoning empires through overwhelming brutality in war and unrelenting cruelty in subjugation. And it, it, it was so bad that the conquered people were so terrified by the consequences that they dared not rebel or speak out. Yet... This exalted emissary of Yahweh is a man associated with weakness and brokenness. He's ignored. He's worse than ignored. He's despised. He's rejected. It really is difficult to imagine how brutal rulers of the ancient Near East were, especially in the face of rebellion. How many of you know the story of King Zedekiah? One person. I'll tell you what, it's in the Bible. You should read it. It's great. The last king of Judah. It's not great. It's horrifying. <clears throat> he was an evil king to begin with, but he was stupid too. And he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, who marched his army to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And when the walls finally fell, all of the warriors fled, and Zedekiah was easily captured. And then Nebuchadnezzar proceeded to kill every Judean commander, every mighty man, and every one of Zedekiah's sons right before his eyes. And then he plucked out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last thing that Zedekiah ever saw was not only the slaughter of his mighty men, not only the slaughter of his children, but the end of his dynasty, the metaphorical end of the nation. And if that weren't enough, he was then dragged away to live out his days in prison, tormented by the final images of his sight while the best young men of Judah were carried off and made Babylonians. This is the same guy who threw three people who wouldn't bow to an image of him into a fiery furnace. Kings of the ancient Near East do not accept rebellion and rejection. They crush it. But as we will read in the following verses, this is the very reason that the, that the suffering servant came to be rejected, to be despised. 
So it should be no surprise that the role of the suffering servant is unbelievable. It's confounding to us. Of course, this, Isaiah understood what kings were like. He understood what an emissary of a king represented. So, of course, this message of a successful servant would be met with disbelief, and it still is today. In fact, it is still intensely controversial today because the work of the suffering servant is substitutionary. The work of the suffering servant is substitutionary. Read with me verses four through nine. It says this. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully. What's happening here? There's two contexts we need to be aware of. The first, of course, is the ancient Near East context that we've already kind of discussed. If you read the chronicles of other ancient Near East kings, they are filled with claims to precisely the opposite of what is being claimed in verses 4 through 9. Through their servants, they were doing the crushing. They were doing the piercing. They were doing the oppressing and judging. They were bringing peace through the, the wounding and slaughtering of others. Yet this emissary, this royal representative is taking on all of those things. He's absorbing these things. Rather than punishing wayward subjects for their rejection of his lordship, the Lord is punishing the servant as though he was the one in rebellion. But it's clear that he is in no way guilty of this. The second context we need to be aware of is the Jewish context of the Mosaic Covenant. When verse four says that he bore our pain, sickness and pains and, what we can, and that we considered him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, what images popped into the head of the Jewish hearer? What did the Jew think of when he heard about the consequences laid upon the suffering servant for the iniquities and rebellions in verse 5? What about the reference to oppression and affliction in verse 7? And what about the reference to being led like a lamb to the slaughter? Well, the lamb one is easy. Surely for the Jew, that evokes the image, the images of the sacrificial system detailed in the book of the law. 
in which the sins of the community and the individual are symbolically laid upon the innocent, spotless, unblemished animal. And then that animal is killed in the place of the sinful offering bringer in order to atone for their sin. And as part of that covenant, under which the sacrifices were made, there was a long list of blessings for obedience. And there was an even longer list of curses for disobedience. Turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy 28. I'm going to read this. It's not going to be up on the screen. The first 15 verses of Deuteronomy, 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28 are wonderful. They're the blessings that God promises for, for, for people faithfully following him. But starting in verse 15, Moses to the people of God says this, but if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes that I am giving you today, all of these curses will come and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city. You will be cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading bowls will be cursed. Your offspring will be cursed. Your land's produce, the young of your herds, the newborn of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in. You will be cursed when you go out. The Lord will send against you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me and rebelling against me. The Lord will make pestilence cling to you until he has exterminated you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will afflict you with wasting disease, fever, inflammation, burning heat, drought, blight, and mildew. And these will pursue you until you perish. The sky above you will be bronze. The earth beneath you will be iron. The Lord will turn the rain of the land into falling dust. It will descend on you from the sky until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will march out against them from one direction, but flee from them in seven directions. You will be an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your corpses will be food for all the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth, and no one will scare them away. The Lord will afflict you with, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on, from verse 15 to verse 68. That is what would have come into the mind of the Jew hearing this when it is said that this is the affliction of God upon him, the affliction of God on disobedience and rebellion. Yet, this innocent one, the one to whom, the one whom verse 9 claims was pure, both externally and internally, this innocent one is punished by God for the iniquity of us all. He is clearly the substitute. He is clearly bearing the consequences of our sin, of others' sin. And not in a generalized, oh, people's sin killed him because their murderous hearts got him kind of way. Verse six makes it clear. This is punishment from God onto the servant of Yahweh as the direct result of other people's sin. 
The picture that is being painted in the Jewish mind is that the suffering servant is being positioned beneath the holy wrath of God against rebellious sin to bear the weight of all the curses listed in Deuteronomy 28, including violent death, as a substitutionary sacrifice for the actual rebels. And here is where the controversy within Christianity pops off. There are many who abhor the concept that God would punish an innocent person in the place of the guilty, especially a father doing it to the son. Stephen Chalk calls it cosmic child abuse. Brian Zahn calls it a pagan concept and an outrageous libel against a God of justice and love. There are many who abhor the idea that God even has hatred towards sin because sin isn't really rebellion against a holy God. It's just a failure to be fully human. And when confronted by the concepts that we find in this passage, those who oppose penal substitution invent myriad ways to get around it, to reinterpret it, to lessen the burning hatred of God against sin. In the earlier years of my life, my family was part of an Episcopal church. If you don't know what the Episcopal church is, it's like the Anglican church in America. If you don't know what the Anglican church is, it's the Church of England. You just think diet Catholic, right? <laughs> and there's some great things about the Episcopal Church. But in general, they trend in a pretty progressive di direction, and their theology has grown more and more progressive. So while we were there, a leading seminary professor came and taught a class at this church. Uh, and this is one of those, those, when they say leading seminary professor, he is driving some of the theology of the entire denomination. Comes and teaches this class. Got so weird that my dad finally had to stop and say, excuse me, do you believe that Jesus died for our sins? And the man said, of course. Of course I believe he died for our sins. In the same way that many martyrs have died because of the sins of humanity across the ages. And at that point, my dad stood up, grabbed the family, we left, and we never went back. <laughs> Listen. But those who reject substitutionary atonement, they do have a point. They do have a point. Proverbs 17, 15 says, acquitting the guilty and condemning the just, both are detestable to the Lord. And so there's a moral quandary set up by that for us. But it's one that's pretty easily taken down. First, the Proverbs are wisdom sayings for the creature from the creator governing their creaturely behavior. Certainly, they are expressions of his nature, but he is not constrained by human conceptions of justice. We are to be constrained by his. He himself is the standard of justice, and hence, all that he does is just. And second, the lasting experience of the suffering servants the innocent substitute is not condemnation. God does not ultimately condemn the just in Isaiah 53. In fact, the legacy of the suffering servant is divine vindication. 
the lasting legacy of the suffering servant is divine vindication. Read with me verses 10 and 12. It says, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by the knowledge of my righteous servant, the, the, it will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many, and he interceded for the rebels." Brothers and sisters, from Genesis to Revelation, it is plain that the just consequence of sin is death. And we all, as sons and daughters of Adam, and proactive sinners ourselves, are entitled to the just compensation of death. And just like a wage that is owed to us from an employer it would be unjust for that wage not to be paid us. God has ordered the universe in such a way that because of sin, we decay and we die physically and spiritually and mentally and relationally and emotionally and any other type of Ali you can, you can think of. But this one who was without violence, a euphemism for righteousness and behavior, and who had no deceitful speech, a euphemism for righteousness of heart, though he passes through the anguish of decay and death, he does not remain in that state of punishment. Unlike evil Zedekiah, who saw his lineage extinguished before him, this servant is promised what? He will see his seed, that his legacy will be prolonged. Unlike Zedekiah, whose position of royal service was stripped from him by the instrument of God's justice, what is the suffering servant promised? That he will remain the servant of Yahweh, that the Lord accomplishing his purposes through him. And where Zedekiah was blinded and thrust into perpetual darkness... After his anguish, the suffering servant will see what? Light and be satisfied. He will see light and be satisfied. He will not receive the wages of death, he will, but life. He will be richly rewarded. The many will be given to him as a portion. The mighty will be given to him as a spoil precisely because he was an obedient substitute. The Greg Boyds and the Brian Zons and the N.T. Wrights are not wrong in thinking that if God had consigned a human to a brutal torture and death on behalf of others, that God would be a monster. They're not wrong. But that's not what God did. Not only did the suffering servant go willingly, death was simply a waypoint for him, an obstacle to be surmounted on his way to exaltation. And what is his success? What is his accomplishment? 
that those whose iniquities he took will be justified, seen as righteous before God. God not only gives divine vindication to the suffering servant, he gives it to those the servant suffered on behalf of. How can this be? How can this be? If our sins demand the eternal displeasure of God, crystallized in this concept of death, how can we be justified in God's sight by someone else's death? Allow me a mildly insufficient analogy. Imagine, if you will, that you owe a debt to someone. You, let's say you stole from your rich neighbor. You stole like a million dollars. Took it to the track, bet on the wrong pony, lost all of it. And you get caught and you get convicted. What would biblical justice demand? That you pay back the million dollars plus 20%. That's what biblical justice would demand. And to, to whom do you owe the money? The state? Not in a biblical model. You owe it to the one from whom you stole it. And if you can't pay it, you become their servant until they get every dime back. But what would happen if Bill Gates came along and he paid the 1.2 million on your behalf? Would you then be in right standing with your neighbor? No! <laughs> I would argue that although you wouldn't be his slave, you certainly would not be back in his good graces. You're a thief. Just because he got his money back plus some doesn't change the fact that his neighbor robbed him. And then he didn't even pay him back. Somebody else did. What would it take to be justified? To be in right standing in your neighbor's eyes. It would take your neighbor absorbing the harm absorbing the wrong, discharging the debt, and offering you forgiveness and reconciliation. Even if Bill Gates came along, even if you earned the money back to pay it back, you still sinned against him. And there's nothing that you can do to justify yourself in the heart and the mind of your neighbor. Your neighbor must justify you must put you back in right standing. So the only way that we could be rightly justified before God is if there is someone who can not only absorb and discharge our debt, but who can give to us something that we cannot possess on our own, the approval of God. And the only way a being could absorb an infinite and eternal debt which the rebellious sins of humanity incurs is if A, they are an infinite and eternal being, and B, the debt is owed to them. I would not be able to forgive your neighbor's debt. Sorry, I would not be able to forgive your debt to your neighbor because it's not mine to forgive. So in order for this death, for, for the, the, the servant's death to truly justify rebels before God, the suffering servant must be sinless. He cannot be dying for his own sins. 
That, is the, that would be the just wage for him. He has to be capable of, of substituting for a human. So he must be a human. Yet he must be eternal and infinite. Because the debt is eternal and infinite. And he must be the one to whom the debt is owed. Does this sound like anyone we know? Say maybe the incarnate, unique, second person of the Trinity. Which brings us to our last point. The identity of the suffering servant is Jesus the Messiah. Surprise! There's the big twist. (laughs) Now this is where the controversy between Christian theologians and Jewish theologians takes off. In general, Jewish theologians who even engage with this chapter see the suffering servant not as an individual, but as a metaphor for all of Israel, God's covenant people. They look to the experience of suffering and persecution of the Jews throughout history as the ongoing fulfillment of this prophecy, and that one day all the Gentile nations will be delivered to Israel in one way or another. Now, I, I, I please know I am oversimplifying their argument, and though I don't intend to, I'm totally strawmanning it. However, even if that is the proper interpretation, that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is the nation of, is in fact Israel. As Christians, we still know that Jesus of Nazareth is what? The true Israel. He's the true Israel. So he is still the suffering servant, even with consideration to the Jewish interpretation. Furthermore, nearly All of the New Testament authors associated, directly associated Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth with the suffering servant. It's arguable. It's for sure 8 out of 12 verses, but it's arguable that 10 out of 12 verses of Isaiah 53 are directly quoted in the New Testament. And there are dozens of implied references centering around Jesus Christ, crediting him as the suffering servant. And these are not oblique or tangential references. The Gospel of John is packed full of implied and overt references to the Isaiah passage. In John 6, Jesus talks about all the people that the Lord will give to him, like the servant of Isaiah 53. In John 10, Jesus says that he lays down his life, what? Willingly, willingly submitting to death like the servant of Isaiah 53. In John 12, 32, he says, if I am lifted up or exalted, speaking about his imminent crucifixion, what does he say? I will draw all men unto myself. That sounds an awful lot like the exalted servant in Isaiah 52 being given the many people promised to him in Isaiah 53. Because He gave himself willingly to death. But if you think I'm imposing that on the text, just know that five verses later in John 12, the apostle John directly quotes Isaiah 53 saying it's talking about Jesus. And if you look at the themes of despised and rejected and devalued, 
uh, John 1, 1 says that he, he was in the world and the world was created through him, but uh, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own what? Did not receive him, rejected him. John 3, 18 through 19, it talks about how uh, anyone who believes in him is justified, is not, is con- not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because they have not believed in him. And what's the judgment? That the light has come into the world and people hated it. They loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. They rejected the light. They despised the light because they loved their rebellion. And it's not just the Gospel of John. It's almost the entire New Testament except maybe Jude and Philemon. And here are just some of the either direct references or indirect references in the New Testament to just Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 1, Matthew 11, John 1, John 12, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 1, 53, verse 2, Luke 2, John 19, Philippians 2, Romans 8, 53, verse 3. Matthew 26, Matthew 27, Mark 14, Luke 9, John 1, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 12. Brothers and sisters, we could literally spend days tracking through all of the New Testament scriptures which lean upon the prophecy of the suffering servant. And as William Farmer puts it, this evidence indicates that there is an Isianic soteriology deeply embedded in the New Testament, which finds its normative form and substance in Isaiah 53. That is a real fancy way of saying you cannot understand what the New Testament is talking about in terms of salvation without Isaiah 53. And it is clear in the New Testament that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself made the claim. That's all that evidence is enough. Jesus himself made the claim that he was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus quotes the last line of Isaiah 53 in Luke 22, 37. It's after the celebration of the Passover meal, which we remember in communion, which we will be taking today. Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be turned over to the authorities and ultimately slaughtered like the lamb that they had just eaten. And he says to his disciples, for I tell you what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he quotes, and he was counted among the lawless, among the rebels, referencing the last line of the suffering servant song. And then he says, yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. The Bible speaks clearly. Jesus of Nazareth is the exalted servant of Yahweh. He's the Messiah. He's the one whom God punished in the place of sinners, who successfully justified the many and has been given them as his portion. And to to whom we owe faith and allegiance. So this is a pretty information-heavy sermon. What is the application of this? Well, the application, first and foremost, is repent and believe the gospel. God has made a way to both satisfy justice 
and to reconcile you to him. And he is both just and good for doing so. And it's clear that he did it because he loves you. Do not scorn this good news. Do not cling to your rebellion for which Christ died. God has overlooked the former times of ignorance, but he calls all men everywhere to repent and turn to Christ. And listen, I don't care if you have gone to church for your entire life or if this is your first day walking through the door, if you have not laid hold of, by faith, the substitutionary atoning work of Christ on your behalf, do not wait another day. Do not wait another moment. In this moment, you can stand right before the Lord, justified in his court, but you must repent of your sins and believe the gospel. And for those of us who have been given that gift, for those of us who are in Christ, this passage calls us to suffer faithfully. Suffer faithfully. We see in this story that although it truly is anguish in every sense of the word, that suffering is not meaningless. We see in this story that God indeed crushes his servants. But new wine pours forth from them because of it. We see in this story that the kingdom of God goes ever forward, but like birth pangs, it is with pain and anguish and suffering. Do not flee from God because it is hard. Do not flee from God because it hurts. Trust in God that your suffering will be redeemed and it will bring redemption to others just as it did with the suffering servant. And finally, our last point of application, act victoriously. Act victoriously. Jesus died. He actually died. He really did. It wasn't metaphorical. It wasn't mythical. He sat beneath the cup of God's wrath and he drank it down to the dregs. Christ did this to deal with the power of sin and the consequence of sin. And he did it on your behalf out of his great love for you. And it was awful. It was awful. But he didn't just die. He didn't just die. He was raised to new life. He was given the many as a portion. He is silencing the mouths of kings and sprinkling the nations, making them realms in his holy domain. And when we are baptized into Christ, we are baptized not only into his suffering and death, but into his glorious success and exaltation. So do not embrace the pandemic of Christian defeatism. Now certainly, this passage shows that the methods of victory are totally contrary to worldly methods, but it does show unequivocal victory. So think and act and raise your family and build your business as though 
victory is assured. Because of the suffering servant, it is. Will you pray with me? I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. Lord God, we thank you that you have stood in our place. We thank you that you took the blow that we never could have borne. We thank you that you've discharged our debt, that you've absorbed the, the, the wrong of it, and that you have given us in your love, your approval. God, we ask that that would be a reality for us. It would not be a, a disconnected text from, a, from an old book, but it would be the reality of, of how we live and how we move, that Jesus has died and he has risen again and that we are the reward of his suffering. We love you. We praise you in your name. Amen.